Let's pray, and then we'll turn to God's word. Father God, uh, we bless you that we've been able to sing those words from the... We just ask now that as we come to these critical verses, these verses that especially in the last 20 years or so in Britain, indeed, as a result of that around the world have just been under so much challenge and fire and uh, criticism. Uh, Father, we just ask that we might honour you, first and foremost, in how we handle these verses. Father, may we not speak wrongly of you, past, present or future, but may we credit you with what Scripture declares you have done and see it aright and see what Christ suffered aright for our sakes in order that we might be saved, for we ask it in his name. Amen fourth servant song part two penal substitution of the many heresies that have arisen within the church down through the centuries and of course they arose right back in the time when New Testament scripture was being written there were already all sorts of wrong teachings going on Uh, none in most recent days has done more harm and damage within the church than the issue of penal substitution Uh, it's been a heresy on and off down through the centuries, the same as any other. Uh, But it took one man, um, an Englishman by the name of Steve Chalk, who of course was very popular. He was uh, regularly featured on TV. He was regularly writing in papers. Uh, Many people liked him, admired him, looked up to him. Uh, He very much represented the evangelical church in England in many people's eyes. And he wrote a book. Uh, The book uh, was... uh, I can't remember what it was called, uh, The Lost Message of Jesus, and in that he attacked the whole doctrine of penal substitution, likening the idea of God the Father punishing Jesus Christ, in his words, to cosmic child abuse. Now immediately, of course, there was outcry against that book and that idea by the true church within the land, but at one and the same time, thousands of people jumped on the bandwagon and said, absolutely right, I mean, how can God behave like that? Uh, How can God the Father pick on the Son and punish him for what someone else has done wrong? Uh, That would indeed be cosmic child abuse. And there are all sorts of splits, all sorts of divisions, issues with churches going totally adrift in their theology. Um, As a result of it, I think the thing that was evident to everybody in the land uh, was that most Christians in our land today do not understand doctrine as they should do. They either didn't understand what the argument was about at all, or they were so poor in their biblical understanding of what actually happened at the cross that they simply embraced this lie for no other reason than they liked the guy who perpetrated it. Uh, But as a result of that, of course, good things came out of it. God always triumphs. Um, Word of life split from Spring Harvest because Spring Harvest sided with um, Steve Chalk. They kept him on their executive committee and as a speaker on their events. Uh, Word of life split off from that, became new Word of life. And out of that uh, has grown massively. That has massive influence, of course, with the students uh, in our universities and colleges. Um, as a result, many people started writing good books on penal substitution. Suddenly, it became the topic to write on. And suddenly, many churches that have perhaps been very lazy with teaching doctrine woke up to the fact that this is important and started teaching as they should have been teaching all along. People like Stuart Townend had to threaten churches with copyright 
because they wanted to sing Christ alone, but they wanted to drop out the verse, or they were dropping out the verse, uh, that the wrath of God was satisfied. And uh, so he sort of threatened that if you, you know, it's copyrighted, you either sing it all or you don't sing it. It was a massive dividing issue um, behind the scenes very much, but in our land and indeed overseas. So we come to these verses, and these verses, plus the first part of verse 10, are key, absolutely key, to what Scripture says concerning what actually took place on the cross there. Who was responsible for it, who was doing what, and what was the result of it. I want us to start here. I, the guilty sinner. I've got a very real, very big problem as of you. It's a problem that if we leave it alone, we'll only get worse. It's a problem to which we have no means of addressing it or curing it of ourselves. We cannot consult doctors over it. We cannot, psychiatrists can't help us with it. It is my problem and it's a life problem. And it will determine my eternity and that problem is my sin. To appreciate the horror of sin, of course, we need to see it as God sees it, not how we see it. I mean, the world sees sin as, at worst, something that's sort of naughty but nice. God describes it totally different. God describes it as something horrific. And he uses two words here in verse 5 to describe our sin. He speaks of our transgressions and he speaks of our iniquities. And then in verse 6, he gives in descriptive words what our sin is. He says, we have turned everyone to his own way. Now in verse 5, these two words are used, transgressed iniquities, they don't mean the same thing. It's not simply that God's underlining it for us and sort of double underlining it by repeating what he said. He's saying two distinct things here. So let's take them one at a time. The first one is this, transgressions. The word in the Hebrew is pesha. It's, uh, it means rebellion, specifically rebellion against God. And God is saying here, look, here is the first way you must view your sin. It is rebellion against me. Remember the words of David? He's sinned with Bathsheba. He's had a husband murdered. He's had other people killed with him. And then Nathan the prophet comes and reveals to him what he's done. And this is how David speaks in Psalm 51 verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And we look at what David has done if we were non-Christians and say, well, what he has done is against Bathsheba. It's certainly against Bathsheba's husband. It, you might say it's against Israel because he's the king of Israel, so it sort of it reflects on them and damages them as a people. But no, David sees it aright. The sin that I've committed is fore and foremost against God. Indeed, he says, it's so much about you that I can say against you only have I sinned. He's not diminishing what he's done wrong against others, but he's saying ultimately, what I have done is against God himself. Do you remember the prodigal son? Jesus tells the story, it's part of his teaching. And this is what he says in it, when this prodigal son comes to his senses, comes back to his father, and he says, Luke 15, 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. The son says, my sin that I've committed, yes, it's before you. I've taken your money, I've misused it, I've 
dishonoured your name. But he says, it's against heaven that I've sinned and before you. He says, let's get it right way round. And that's the first way we have to understand our sin. It's a rebellion against God. Now the world won't see that. And I suggest to you that very often Christians don't want to see that. We'll reason like this. You're faced with telling a lie. And, and maybe it's over something like you're visiting someone in hospital and they're terminally ill and they're dying and they say to you, am I dying? And, and you don't want to hurt them and you think it's more loving to not be truthful with them. And so you say to them, no, 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 I'm sure you'll be up and out again in no time at all. And, and you try to placate your conscience by saying, I did it in love and it's only between me and that person. No one else is damaged. It is a rebellion against God first and foremost or we're tempted to watch something or read something in a magazine that we know we shouldn't read it's unholy it's wrong and we reason like but it's only me that's, it's not going to affect anybody else nobody else will even know the worst it's going to do is damage my mind a little bit that's my business it's not it's a rebellion against God first and foremost and then there's iniquity hoon in the Hebrew and, and Iniquity speaks of not our relationship towards God, but our relationship to myself, what I'm doing to myself. It, it, it's a twisting. It's the things that I do that actually end up twisting me. They twist my mind. They twist my attitudes. It twists my relationships. It m- twists my mind and it makes me a twisting person. And God says, and that's what we're like. We're in a state of rebellion against him. And by our own doing, our own thinking, our own actions, we become twisted and twisters as people. And then in verse 6, he sort of summarizes it in easy language. He says, we have turned everyone to his own way. In other words, God has declared, this is how you should live. And we've said, okay, I understand that. This is how I'm going to live. And we turn around and do the very opposite of what God said. We do exactly what the words of that song made famous say. For what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has naught. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. And God says that's absolutely right. You can write it as a song and sing it. That's exactly what you've done. You've gone the very opposite way to what I've told you to go and you're proud of it. You make songs of it. But what God makes absolutely clear in the Bible is this. There is a cost to us doing that. We do not do it with impunity. We cannot rebel against him. We cannot twist ourselves and become twisters without there being a cost that we've got to pay. We've got to answer for. Listen, Ezekiel 18 verse 4. The soul who sins shall die. A few verses later, Ezekiel 18 verse 20, the soul who sins shall die. You're going to New Testament, Romans chapter 6 verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 5:12. Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death 
is the inevitable consequence of sin. Because I sin, I must die. And you look at that and you hear that and you say, well, who cares then because we're all going to die anyway. But this is talking more than just physical death. It's talking about the soul dying. It's talking about what happens after death. It's talking about the fact that we're going to stand before Christ in judgment and if we're in our sin, then we're going to be cast into everlasting death. A a living death that the Bible calls hell. Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 onwards. This is yet to happen, but it will happen. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And the devil, chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Do you get the picture? So God has got all these books in which is detailed everything that we have done in our lifetimes. And then he's got another book separate from it. And first of all, he opens up these books and we're judged according to what we've done in them. We can't change it. We can't pretend it didn't happen. God knows perfectly. He is, he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And he will judge us according to what we have done as recorded in these books. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. So everybody, past, present and future, are brought before this throne of God and he judges every single person according to the record of the life they've lived and the verdict is that every single person who has ever lived is guilty by that record without exception but we then read then death and Hades were thrown into the uh, into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the judgment on every single human being who has ever lived is this. You are guilty. You deserve to go into hell. But then God opens this separate book, this book of life. And if your name is written in there, you're not thrown into the lake of fire. That is the record of those who have trusted in Christ. And if our trust in Christ, we're not cast into the lake of fire. My friend, do you get it? This lake of fire is not just reserved for Hitler. It's not just reserved for the Islamist extremists, Islamist extremists. It's reserved for everyday, ordinary people like you and I. Our friends are going to be there. Our parents, our neighbours, our children, our brothers and sisters, even us, If we're not in Christ, we're going to be thrown into that lake of fire and eternally punished. The degree of punishment will vary. God is just. It will will depend to the extent in which we've sinned. But just to be there for all eternity will be your worst nightmare times a million. That is how horrific sin is. 
My friend, can I ask you a simple question before we go any further? Can you see yourself as God sees you? Not as a nice person living a nice life, but as a fundamental sinner, one who is in a state of rebellion against him, one who is twisting yourself and then becoming a twister in the way you relate to other people because of the fact that in your mind and in your heart you're not living as God has called you to live. You're not honouring him, you're not glorifying him, you're not magnifying him. And that is totally destructive. And God must punish that and God has put a place, he's created a place to punish it, he calls it hell. And the punishment there will be eternal. Now that's where we have to start. And part of the reason I suggest to you that penal substitution was very readily kicked out by many so-called professing Christians was because they'd already kicked out eternal punishment. And if you don't believe in eternal punishment, then it's not that necessary that Christ should come and suffer all that he suffered for us. Scripture says, God says, eternal punishment is real. And it will be for everyone who is outside of Christ. So I want us to see, secondly, Jesus, the perfect substitute. Verse 9 says of him, he has done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The verses we're actually looking at, 4 to 6, don't really speak about the perfection of Christ. But scripture absolutely does. We just need to look in other places. Listen to what the Father says of him at his baptism. Matthew three seventeen. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, when he's up the mountain and he suddenly radiates his glory. And a voice from heaven speaks out and according to Peter in 2 Peter 1.17 this is what the Father said. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then the writer to Hebrews says this of him. In Hebrews chapter 4.15 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, he says, Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, was subject to every single temptation, category, type of temptation that you or I are, but without sin. Not for one millisecond, not for one microsecond, did he rebel against the Father. Not for one microsecond did he become twisted in his thinking or in the way he approached others, he was perfect. Even when he was faced with his death. And in his humanity he contemplates what lies before him and he cries out, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Even there he does not rebel against the father. And we don't have to take believers words for that do we this is what Pilate said of him Matthew twenty-seven, twenty-three. why what evil has he done John 19 verse 6 Pilate speaking for I find no guilt in him the centurion the Roman centurion supervising the crucifixion as Christ cries out it is finished and gives up his spirit Luke twenty-three, forty-seven. he prays God saying certainly this man was innocent even his enemies had to admit it. They had to bribe someone to betray him. They had to bribe others to give false testimony against him. 
He lived a perfect, sinless life. He is the only man who had no reason to die. He put it like this himself as they arrested him. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? Do you not understand what's happening here? He says to his disciples, do you think that I'm not in control of this situation? Do you think that I've got to die because I've got no choice in the matter? Don't you understand? If I just said the word now, 72,000 angels would descend to do my bidding. But how then would anybody be saved? How then would the scripture be fulfilled? How then would God's wrath be appeased if I walk away from this and don't die? Can you see how unlike you Jesus was? Can you see how perfect he was? How totally undeserving of death? Can you see that if he died, it was not like you or I to do with his sin? It was not because... He just got things wrong and therefore the just punishment with that was that he should die. No, it had to be for another reason that Jesus died. Because he was sinless. Which brings us to the great exchange. Penal substitution. I hope as we read those three verses you notice the intimate interwovenness of two parties. The first party is Jesus Christ. The second party is each and every Christian who has ever lived. Did you notice that? Let me read it again and put some emphasis on it. Verse 4. Surely he, that is Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's the wonder of the greatest exchange that's ever taken place from the creation of the world until Christ's return. There's never going to be another event like this one. We bring to the cross what? The sum totality of all of our sins. We contribute nothing else. That's all we can do. We simply come to the cross saying, Father, I am just filled with rebellion and twistedness. And I'm powerless to do anything about it. That's who I am. That's all I can bring to the cross. And what do I go away from the cross with? Two words it uses. Verse 4. Sorry. um, Verse 5. Peace and healing we bring all our garbage we bring all our sin we bring all our rebellion we bring all our Christ hatefulness and we come away from it at peace with God and we come away from it totally healed of all that we've done wrong and all that we will do wrong in the future we look at it like this we look at Christ on the cross as we saw last time and we see it as though He's stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. All we see is the fact that, look, God is punishing him there. But what we don't appreciate, he says, verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reason behind God punishing him, in other words. 
God isn't punishing him because he deserves it. God is punishing him because we deserve it. And he is hanging there as a substitute. How does that work? My friend, it works by God's sovereign design, purpose, will and action. God is totally in control of it. It is the Father's plan from before the foundation of the world, as that guy was preaching in the video earlier on, before ever God started his work of of creation, it was God's plan that it would happen like that. So, scripture is clear. The Father punishes the Son. He pours out his wrath on Christ. Christ hangs there as an innocent substitute. But don't for one moment think that that means it's cosmic child abuse. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christ chooses to go there. For the joy set before him, says the writers of the Hebrews, he endured the cross. He's already said in that verse we quote, uh, if, if, if there is no other way, then your will be done. And at the end of the day, Jesus is as much God as the Father is God. This isn't God picking on some other person. This is God punishing God. They're of one essence. The person of the Father pours out his wrath on the person of the Son who is co-equal God with him, of one essence. The early disciples understood this. Acts chapter 4, 26, you remember they're told they mustn't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They call a a prayer meeting and start praying to God. And how do they pray? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. God, we understand exactly what happened. Uh, The Jewish authorities, uh, the Roman Pilate and all the rest of them, they got together, they decided to put Jesus to death. That was the evil work of men. And then they go on like this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. They did nothing that you hadn't purposed should happen, Father. Praise the Lord, you were sovereign. You were in control. We're going to get down to verse 10 in due course, but just take a look at how it opens. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. My friend, penal substitution stands. Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath of God. He diverted it away from you who deserve it into himself and he made full atonement for it. Romans 3, verse 23, we read this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God put him forward as a propitiation. God the Father said, I'm going to punish Jesus Christ for the sin of all who will believe in me, in him. My friend, does that include you? As we sit here this morning looking at the most wondrous truth as far as my eternal future is concerned in the whole of Scripture, does this include you? Can you say, Amen, that's me. My sin was paid for by Jesus. 
He willingly chose to go to the cross to die and bear in his body the punishment that I deserve in order that I might go free. Can you say that? Everything hinges on that. When those books are opened and God says to you, look, here is your life. Show me anywhere in there where you deserve to come into heaven. You will not find anything in there. Show me in here why I should not punish you in hell. You will find stacks. And then he will open another book. The only book that counts is your name in this. And you can't do anything to merit it going in there. You can't do anything to pay for it being put in there. All you can do is fall down your knees and plead with God on the grounds that Jesus Christ was my substitute. He died for me. Father, for his sake, will you forgive me? And the Father will forgive you. And your name will be entered into that book. And on that day, when you stand before God in judgment, he will open that book and he'll say, there you are, your name. Your sin has been dealt with. The price has been paid. My wrath has been expended on Christ. There is nothing left to punish in you. He's paid it in full. Let me just read to you one verse as we close. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he that is God the Father made him, that is Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. God the Father chose to make Christ who was without sin the sin bearer. He didn't become sinful. God reckoned, God, God reasoned it as though he bore the sin so that he could punish him for that sin in order that we who are the sinners might go free and that his righteousness might be counted to us. My friends, are you in Christ this morning? Are you sure? Because come hell or high water, that's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what the presidency in America does or doesn't do. It doesn't matter what Brexit does in the UK or doesn't do. It doesn't matter what happens in your career prospects, in your family, in your relationships. It doesn't matter how you die. Ultimately, this is the only thing that's going to matter. Is your name in that book or isn't it? And that hinges solely on whether or not you will bow the knee to Jesus Christ and take him as your Lord and Saviour. Because he has made propitiation. He has dealt with the wrath of God each and every person who will turn and trust in him we're going to sing as we close in Christ alone